This is episode 42 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his debut appearance on the show. He's a contributor for heavyhockey.com, Ryan Lotzberg. Ryan, how's it going tonight, man? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm really good. It's, uh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, you've been on the Oilers live podcast with Michael several times now, and I believe straight off the pipe with uh, Dash and Durst as well. So I think it's about time I had you on my show. Yeah, I've got to complete the heavy hockey trifecta here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we also did an episode together a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, when you were still with Oil Drops. Yeah, that's right. Uh, talking about Tyler Benson, if I recall. Yeah, it was it was uh, just before the pandemic hit, I think, on uh, Michael's show. So yeah, it's uh, long overdue for us to record another episode. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And we've got a lot to talk about tonight. But before we break down the Oilers last game, I'd like to just hear a little bit about your own hockey background. So let me just start by asking you, how did you first get interested in hockey? And how did you become an Oilers fan? Well, I first remember getting into hockey when I I had to have been like seven or eight years old. I, I just remember being in trouble in my room one day and having the hockey game on when I wasn't supposed to be watching TV. It was an Oilers-Jets game, I recall, if I recall. But uh, yeah, growing up as a kid, to be honest, I was not an Oilers fan. I... Uh, I was into the Ducks for a little while because of the whole Disney thing, and Ooh. I loved their colors, and I was a big Paul Correa fan. And then once Colorado moved to Colorado in 96, then I hopped on that bandwagon and I cheered for them through their glory years. Interesting. So then how did you eventually make the switch to cheering for the Oilers? <laughs> I'm just I'm going to be rubbing Oilers fans the wrong way here, but my <laughs> Avalanche they uh, they got two of my most hated players at the time. One of which was Darcy Tucker, and the other was Ryan Smith. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, w- I was never a Smitty fan. I always thought he was overrated. Wow. So yeah, you you put out a bit of a tease on uh, Twitter today saying that your answer would be somewhat controversial. And, uh, you know, uh, there might be a, a, a large amount of Oilers fans who are going to disagree with you there. But that's that's interesting. Uh, so you you switched to Edmonton shortly after he would have signed there in Colorado in 2007. It was shortly after that, yeah. Like, it was around the time, like, I was just getting into the World Juniors then, and I started to see guys like Jordan Everly be on our radar and our pipeline, and I was like, yes, that's the type of hockey I want. Like, I I was never a fan of the old workman-like crew that could never, oh, okay. like, that would, at best, fight for a eighth spot in the Western Conference kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to see some skill. And like Jordan Everly getting drafted was kind of the start of that. And part of me was just being tired of sticking out like a sore thumb and opposing the whole <laughs> team all the time. And I just wanted to be part of the group. So I ended up hopping on with the Oilers and I've been a loyal fan ever since. Yeah, that's interesting because anytime I have uh, a first time guest on, I always ask them how they became an Oilers fan. And it's interesting to talk to people of different ages, like someone in their 60s compared to someone who's 20 years old and to, and to hear you know who their their favorite players were growing up who they uh idolized what what how they became a fan of the team but that is maybe the most interesting answer that i've, I've heard on this show is um 
your transition to becoming an Oilers fan after the Smitty years. And um, I mean, if you were a, mo- a more fan of the skill than the grinded out style, I can see how you might have not been a fan of him because that was 100% his game. And, uh, you know, as an Oilers fan through all those years in the late 90s and early 2000s, they simply just didn't have the the financial backing to ice a championship level team. They were you know, a sixth, seventh, eighth place team that would kind of get in the playoffs just barely. And, you know, one one time beat Dallas in the first round, one time beat Colorado, but mostly it was a first round exit until after the, the salary cap came in in 05 when they were able to actually be on a, a competitive playing field with the, the rest of the league. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I was a big fan of Everly too. And, and you're right, that did sort of, signal a change that the Oilers were looking to acquire uh, or build with more young skill, like obviously Everly, Magnus Pyarvi in 2009, and then Taylor Hall in 2010. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, obviously they, they weren't able to build the team around those guys they would have liked. Um, but that's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever heard an answer like that. <laughs> Got to keep people on their toes. Yeah, exactly. Um so you've lived in Edmonton your whole life, then? Yeah, is that what you're saying? You were kind of surrounded and pressured by Oilers fans a bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I always got made fun of and teased in school just because I was I was always a Colorado fan for the longest time, and everyone else was an Oilers fan, obviously. But we always had good fun with it. Yeah, and I mean, during the early 2000s when the Avs were an elite team and competing for cups, you had bragging rights, at least, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was making friendly bets with my friends in, in the playoff series in the late 90s there. So it was always fun. Oh, that's that's awesome, man. Um, well, I'm glad you're on the good side now. And uh, uh, so I was going to ask who your favorite Oilers players were growing up. But, you know, since you were probably getting closer to being an adult by the time you made the switch to being an Oilers fan. I'll just ask then, who are your favorite Oilers players of all time? Favorite Oilers players of all time. I mean, I'm a big fan of the current group. Honestly, like if you've, if you see my background in some of the Oilers live, <laughs> that podcast I've done, I've gotten like a shrine to Connor McDavid going in my apartment here. Um, so I'm a huge fan of his, but if we want to go back to the older years, I guess, like Alish Hemsky was always a favorite of mine. Like mm-hmm. he was one of the more skilled Oilers of that era. Me too. And when I was a kid, I would have to say like Dougie Waite. He, he was certainly the most skilled player on those teams in the early 2000s. So he, he was fun to watch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for the post-Dynasty Oilers, Doug Waite was the best player that franchise had. And then... Uh, there was a, a period of about five years where Alish Hemsky was uh, the franchise player in Edmonton or the face of the franchise, whatever you want to call it, until uh, Taylor Hall basically came to town in 2010. Um, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, I obviously am a big fan of the current group too. Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl. I mean, we're we're so spoiled to get to watch those two together in their prime. I think this is the closest that anyone from our generation could say to what the fans in the 80s had of watching, you know, Gretzky and Messier together. Oh, absolutely. We're just missing those Stanley Cup rings. <laughs> we just need a, a Paul Coffey, a Glenn Anderson, and a Yari Curry. <laughs> More importantly, a Grant Fear. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is a, is a good because we're going to get to that later in the show. Um, but no, but in all seriousness, I do think that the Oilers have a pretty good core built. It's just a matter of 
getting the surrounding pieces to you know become a championship caliber team. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. The core is there. Just need to do a little bit more shuffling, and we'll be there. Exactly. Um, and I was going to ask you what your your if what you remember about your first Oilers game at Northlands Coliseum, but I'm guessing the first time you actually saw a game there, you might have been cheering for the Avs or the Ducks. Absolutely. Yeah, my first game it was uh, Oilers Ducks, and I was cheering for the Ducks. <laughs> And uh, I do you remember anything remember, about the game, what year, anything like that? That was too far back. I don't remember the exact year, but I do remember my first playoff game. That was okay. the first round in 1998, Oilers-Avs. I remember mm. that vividly. 5-4 Colorado win in overtime. Joe Sackick streaking down the left wings and wins it with a slap shot in overtime, and I lost my mind. <laughs> I, like, I remember all, like, walking into that game, I was wearing my Avalanche jersey, and yeah. uh, we walked by a guy pregame, and uh, he had a, a lighter in his hands. He kind of flicked it at me. And, like, you got to remember, really? I was like, 10 years old at this time. Wow. <laughs> 10 years old. And this dude flicks his lighter at me and says, is that thing flammable? <laughs> um, so... The Avs had just won the cup two years previous to that. You must have been shocked that they were upset by the Oilers in the first round. Yeah, I was none too pleased. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that was definitely a surprise. Like, beyond words. Do you come from a hockey family? Is your family Oilers fans? Or or was there any influence of them trying to pressure you into cheering for the, the hometown team? Honestly, no. Like my family has never really been that I'm into hockey. Like I'm kind of the black sheep that way. Like okay. my my dad's always been like really into music. He's a musician by heart, so that's kind of in my blood. Mm-hmm. And my mom, like she, her family watched a little bit of hockey when she was growing up, but yeah, like it just didn't stick with them for whatever reason. But I've since got my mom more into it. She cheers and watches some of the games sometimes. But yeah, my dad, he's more into music than sports. Oh, that's cool. Um, do you play any instruments yourself? I do. I play a little bit of guitar from time to time. Okay. Not not as good as my dad, but uh, <laughs> I'll just play in my apartment for myself. So He taught you a few chords? <laughs> yeah, it taught me some chords. Taught me the basics. Nice. Um, well, just uh, to to wrap up on on talking about your own experiences as a as an Oilers fan, do you what what is your best memory of watching the Oilers either on TV or live in person? Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of memories that jump out at me. Like there was a period where I was actually an usher at Rexall Place. Oh no way. For- for a little bit so like that was in the early part of the the hope years it's like a, <laughs> being there for omar's shootout goal was pretty cool that like the building was crazy that night um but i have to say the most memorable ones that i've been to were closing night at rexall and then opening night at rogers mm-hmm. like it, it, i'm only likely going to see an arena open and close once in my lifetime <laughs> <laughs> Well, the the Oilers have a 35-year lease on Rogers Place, which means they're slated to play there until 2051. So, you know, if if they open a new building then, you'll probably, you know, hopefully you're still around to see that one. I'll, I'll be 62 then, so I'm hoping I get to see a, another, another new one. I can't do that quickly. I'm hoping I'm still around too, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be like uh, the Flames and playing... Uh, 
in their their old barn for another 10 years longer than they have to yeah no that uh wouldn't be the best no um do you try to get out to a few games a year like how often uh, do you uh go see a game at roger's place I try to get to a handful or so every year. I'm actually going on. I'm going tomorrow night too. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember the year that Rogers opened. I must have gone to something like 15 to 20. I can't remember the exact number. And like, I'm not a season seat holder at all. Mm-hmm. I just kept getting invited to games, and I bought games. Um, this year, I'll probably end up at seven or eight by the time I'm done. That's a pretty good total, and I mean, hopefully, you get to see. Uh, the Oilers win on Hockey Night in Canada against the defending champs tomorrow night. I'll be there on the 28th to see them play the Coyotes. And oh, nice. uh, I'm hoping that that's going to be, a, I don't want to say an easy win, but a game that they should win, although the Coyotes have been playing a lot better as of late. Let's hope that yeah. it's just, a, it's just a, a brief hot stretch here and that uh, we'll get to see uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl have some big point nights and lead the Oilers to victory when uh, when I come to town in a couple weeks. Well, anyway, yeah, that uh, Nick Schmaltz stops doing his <laughs> McDavid impression. Yeah, exactly. I could. I'd love to see a seven point night from uh, Connor when they when they roll into town. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome, man. And uh, now let's recap the Oilers' thrilling four three overtime win against the Washington Capitals on Wednesday. Speaking of McDavid, he scored his 30th goal of the season and franchise record 11th career overtime goal to lead the Oilers to victory at Rogers Place. It was also the Oilers' 1500th regular season win in franchise history. And Ryan, it might have been too early to call it a must-win game, but considering how tight the playoff race is right now, these were two points the Oilers absolutely had to have, weren't they? I mean, you can say that about pretty much any game right now, <laughs> but uh, those are two big points. Like Washington's got a really good team over there, so like that's a quality win. Like to have beaten that team twice this year now is impressive. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, uh, the overtime winner that they scored was eerily similar to the one from October 2019 when McDavid and Drysaitel came in on a two-on-one and beat Braden Holpe. The only difference is this time uh, they didn't do the give-and-go pass. Connor just took the shot himself. Yeah, exactly. I think they switched sides this time, too. I think they did. Connor was that, on the right shooting on his off wing there. Yeah, same end of the ice, but just uh, reverse. And, and I'm glad that he took the shot. I think with a, a forward back, you know, it, it, he he saw a spot, and he he likes to do that, uh, five, that low five-hole shot before the goalie can get set, and it seems to be really effective for him. Well, it's, it's such a deceptive release, too, because he, he gets those hands going and you, like he's looking at Leon the whole time. So, like, the, it was well defended in the fact that, like, the guy took away the pass to Leon and left it, the goalie to face the shot. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. But Connor is Connor, and he's going <laughs> to bury that most times. Yeah, it's, it's one of those situations where I think the goalies just get mesmerized by how fast his hands are moving. So even when Connor was just gliding in there, like he wasn't coming full blast at the goalie the way he can on, a, on an odd man rush. But the hands are moving so quick, and he basically was like looking at Leon the whole way, making him think that the, the cross-ice pass is coming there. But obviously, just with that quick release, you know, didn't even look at the goalie and just fires at five hole. I mean, that's almost impossible for him to stop. Oh, yeah, like you have no idea when that shot is coming for sure. I mean, that's something that Connor doesn't get enough credit for, I don't think. Like everyone talks about his speed, and rightly so. 
but it just his spatial awareness, his hockey intelligence, his his hands are just lightning quick. Like I, I don't think all those skills get talked enough and about enough with him. Oh, probably not. I mean, the number one thing that comes up with Connor is that he's the the fastest player in the league. But it, it's sort of like what you said: his mind and his hands are moving equally as as quick as his feet are. So when you have all those skills coming together, it's just you get a pretty lethal hockey player. Absolutely. And uh, before that goal, it was uh, a bit of mayhem late in the game. I, I think we have to start by talking about that, too. Uh, the, the, the blatant missed hooking call committed by Alex Ovechkin in the final minute of the game. And that had to be the worst non-call of the entire season. It was, at the very least, a minor penalty on Ovechkin. But because Zach Hyman was so close to a breakaway with an empty net, you could argue that he should have been awarded an automatic goal. To me, it's just inexcusable that neither of the officials gave him a penalty for that double hook on Hyman as he was skating up the ice. And uh, what made the ignored call even worse is that TJ Oshie scored the game-tying goal with just 1.8 seconds left on the clock. Ryan, can you remember a more egregious infraction in you know, that crucial of a point in the game in recent memory? I can't say that I have. Like Just in the last minute of that tight of a game, in that situation, I can't recall ever seeing a blatant missed call like that. Like... We're Oilers fans. We watch Connor McDavid every night. So we've seen a lot of blatant missed calls, but yeah. <laughs> none that have been that crucial in a game. No, and just just to touch on that for a second, there's always, uh, it seems like, hockey observers or fans from outside of Edmonton that say McDavid complains too much about not getting enough calls, even though he's leading the league in penalties drawn. The fact is, is that even though he has drawn a, a league high 40 penalties this year it should be probably double that they ignore twice as many calls if not more than that three times as many calls than the ones they actually do like he he should honestly draw at least two penalties a game and i'm probably light on that number no you're absolutely right and i don't think that he's been leading the league in penalties drawn for the entirety of the season i think that's he's taken that lead quite recently like when the team had their hot start that was when the complaining was at its peak, right? Like he wasn't getting any calls because the power play was going at almost 50%, but the power play slows down. The team starts losing a bit more and all of a sudden McDavid starts drawing some penalties. Yeah. And I found it ridiculous at the start of the season. Well, it was actually before the season in training camp when he was asked by, I think Jim Matheson, uh, do do you think you should get more calls? And then Connor just said, I just want, the refs to to call the rules and no one shows the question that was asked Th- that clip just gets shown of what mcdavid said there and it makes it look like he brought that up on his own when he was just answering a question so it's not like he went out of his way to make a statement to the world you know i want more penalties so it's funny how that one clip sort of just added to this narrative that mcdavid's complaining for calls and honestly he has the right to he's the face of the game, the face of the league. And he, for the last few years, has been drawing fewer calls than someone like Brady Kachuk. I mean, it just, it, it makes you wonder like why they're not calling more uh, penalties on the stars and protecting the stars of the game. Um, but obviously this year it's, it's changed a little bit. They still have a ways to go. And, um, but getting back to Hyman, you wonder, did Alex Ovechkin, because of his 
reputation and you know longevity in the league did did the refs you know let him get away with that because of his status it's hard to say i mean we've seen enough examples of that over the years and now i don't know if that's just speculation and hearsay or if there's some merit to that but uh i mean the only way I could kind of get on the ref side there is the fact that Hyman was battling with somebody else in the neutral zone as well. And they may have just straight up missed what Ovechkin did just because they were focusing on the other defender, which they could I'm, have been puck watching. Right. <laughs> they could have been puck watching, but it's not like it was even a light hook. I mean, there was a oh, no, there was, he was water skiing. He was water skiing him. And there was a, a call on Warren Fogle earlier in that game where he put one arm out and just kind of spun the defender around and was called uh, for interference. And I'm thinking if that light touch was warranting a two minute penalty, then there is no way that what Ovechkin did shouldn't have had him sitting in the box too. And that pretty much would have sealed the deal for the the Oilers, even if uh, they didn't award the empty net goal and make it four two. if the puck is coming down the ice with at that point, I think under 30 seconds left, the Oilers have an offensive zone faceoff and a five on four with their goalie back in the net. It's pretty much a sure thing that they close out that game. But instead, the uh, the Caps get away with one there and then score the dis- uh, the game tying goal to send it to OT. So yeah, just uh, inexcusable in my opinion. No, I totally agree with you. Like they they messed that one up. That was a blunder. That inexcusable. I mean, you could you could also argue that uh, Hyman should have gone out and blocked that shot a little more aggressively, but <laughs> but he shouldn't have even had to be in the situation where exactly. that would happen. And, exactly. and the th- the thing is, I get sick and tired of hearing about the officials wanting to manage the games. You know, we we don't want to give one team six power plays and the other team two. It's got to be a little closer to you know four 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 three. You know, it's it's got to even out. If there's one team committing more fouls than the other, then they deserve to be on the power play more. It's just the, the officials are, are deciding games in an effort to not be a factor in them. And that has to change. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, like by trying to do that, they became a factor in the game exactly. against Washington. Right. And, that, and that's not right. And like, you don't see them doing anything to try to make the scores even as they can. If a team's up six to two, they're not uh, <laughs> they're not bumping into players on the team that's up trying to make it easier for the other team to score, right? Like it, it's professional sports. There's there should be no mercy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but thankfully. Uh, there was a silver lining to it. The The poetic justice was that McDavid scored the overtime winner, picked up another multi-point game, uh, set the franchise record for overtime goals. I mean, that to get the 1500th win in franchise history, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, they d- absolutely deserved those two points. If the Oilers would have missed the playoffs by one point this year and that was the point that sealed it. We would look back to this game and say the refs absolutely cost us. So I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, me too, for sure. They got their 1500th win in style, we'll say that much. <laughs> exactly. Although I think some uh, teams in the Eastern Conference battling for a, a wild card spot with the Caps uh, won't be too pleased either. O- outside of Edmonton, you might see a, a couple other fan bases that, that saying, well, you, you just gave this team that we're battling with a point that they probably didn't deserve. Yep, and they'd have every right to be upset about that. (laughs) Well, 
you know, let's let's go and touch on a few other points in the game. Uh, Caps goalie Ilya Samsonov really stood on his head early in the game. And uh, before Kyler Yamamoto finally got one past him in the second period on the power play, that kind of opened the offense up for Edmonton. And after watching Edmonton's power play struggle mightily the past couple months, I thought it looked a lot better last game, despite missing players like Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Jesse Pugliarvi. Uh, I'll ask you, what do you think uh, uh, the power play is doing better now? And how, how did you think it looked overall last game? I thought it started to look a lot better. And there's two reasons for that. Um, yeah, I guess we can kind of touch on the article that I wrote now. But the article was all about the power play and what I thought was going wrong and why I, why it's starting to look better in the last couple of games. But the big thing that I noticed was Leon Dreisettle positioned himself a little bit higher in the zone. He's above the faceoff dot now rather than at it or below. So what that does is it opens up the defense a little bit more and creates a few more passing lanes. So like I, I felt like that backdoor tap-in from Yamamoto, that wasn't happening throughout the middle part of the season just because defenses were collapsing low into the slot on us and that pass was never open. Because Connor's trying to force that pass over to Leon for the one-timer every time. And defenses are reading that. Yeah, and we've seen that a lot. That that's the play that the Oilers love to go to. And everyone knows that that's what the Oilers are trying to set up on the power play. And when when you do it so many times and, and they've pre-scouted you and practiced this, you know, defending this, if th- that play isn't going to be there. So they have to get more creative and try new things. And I'm glad that they... They did that because the goal that Yamamoto scored, it reminded me a lot of some of the goals Alex Chason scored when he was the net front guy on the power play and Connor setting him up for uh, tap-ins with that really quick, hard pass. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like there, There's been very little activity in front of the net during the on the power play this year. And Yamo can certainly get his nose in there and get dirty. And like, I wouldn't rather have Chase on there, but I think it's just a product of the boys just trying to force that one play over to Drysaddle a little too often. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I like uh, Pugliarvi in that spot more because he's six foot four compared to Yamamoto, who's barely 58 you know and having that big body there and a longer stick it's you know it's certainly effective although you got to give Yamamoto credit for a little guy he he battles hard isn't afraid to go to the front of the net and you know he he just has a good sense for you know where to be to you know get opportunistic goals like that and I also think that uh, Edmonton really had a little more of a shooting mentality last game and Bouchard is a big part of that. You know, he's such a threat to score from the point with either a slap shot or a wrist shot. He can get both through. And having a defenseman who can get that first shot through past the defense is so valuable because we, we've seen so many shots get blocked from the point, uh, whether it be, you know, Nurse or even Clefbaum when he was still there, Sekera. So getting more shots through is a big thing. And, you know, that's probably the best shot the Oilers have had from the point since Sheldon Surrey played here. I mean, that's probably true, but they're so different, right? Bush is about a subtle release and trying to get it past the blocker, whereas Surrey was just trying to pound it. Exactly. As hard as he could. But both are effective. Like, it doesn't have to be hard in the NHL. Like, even their wrist shots, even their soft wrist shots are harder than I could ever shoot the puck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the other thing that he does really well is he opens up more time and space because the defense know that they have to respect his shot. And that allows, you know, 
someone like McDavid to have more room to work his magic down low and even set up Dreisaitl for that cross-ice pass that we've been talking about. I mean, so I, I think that having him out there will allow for them to get more one-timers, but also it just creates more space in general uh, to try and get at least some some slot area shots. And, and I, at, when it comes to Dreisaitl, we know he can score from anywhere in the, the offensive zones. He doesn't even have to be uh, in like a, a prime shooting position. Yeah, for sure. And what I've noticed watching the flow of the Oilers power play over the last few years is that point man is basically just there to move it from one side of the ice to the other, right? Yeah. Whether it was Clefbaum, whether it's Nurse, Barry to a certain extent. Like Barry did a, a really good job last year of mixing in the odd shot for the exact reasons that you're just talking about, right? Like he's not afraid to shoot it from the point either, but like he, he's a little more creative than Bush in terms of making some cuts. And I find that Barry just moves the puck a little bit faster than Bouchard at this point. Like he just makes the decision to move it just yeah. that little bit quicker. And that I mean, comes with being a veteran too, right? I mean, we're oh yeah. comparing a 21-year-old to a 30-year-old. but um, and, and of course, Barry led the league in points by a defenseman last year. And obviously playing with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl on the power play is going to be a huge benefit to that. I mean, McDavid had a, a season for the ages and, and Leon Dreisaitl still scored 80 points himself. I mean, still over 20 behind McDavid's 105 points ridiculous in uh, in just 56 games but uh I'm not surprised at all that Tyson Berry was almost a point per game defenseman last year. Yeah, no, I I wasn't surprised by that at all either. Uh one of the other really great stories from that game was Brad Malone and uh he scored his first NHL goal since December 2015 to give the Oilers a 3-2 lead in the third period and if not for that missed call in Ovechkin it likely would have held up as the game winner. Ryan, what can you say about a guy who grinded it out in the minors for most of the last 6 years to make it back to the show and score that big of a goal to give his team the lead in a a tight hockey game? It's a great feel good story, isn't it? Like th- those were his first points since 2016 in the NHL, I believe. And uh, yeah, first first goal since December 2015 and first point since January 2016. So over 6 years for both. Yeah, just I'm all the respect in the world for that. Like a guy who's grinded it out and like he he's been such a big part of Bakersfield's success too. Like he he comes there with a good attitude and he he's such a mentor to the kids down there as well. It shows everybody how to play the right way and how to be a pro. And he's been a good soldier for the organization. So, And he's had a great year in Bakersfield this year as well. The, the production has started to come back for him, which is great to see. So, yeah, it's nice to see a guy like that get rewarded with a call-up and then have a big game like he had against Washington. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I'm glad is that the organization has prioritized having – their NHL, their legitimate NHL prospects playing the cherry minutes down in Bakersfield. But at the same time, you need some veteran pros to show them how to play the game at this level, what it takes to make it. And I think Brad Malone has been a really good soldier for the organization. I mean, I, I heard Low Tide talking on his uh, show this morning that uh, Malone was a, a mentor for Kyler Yamamoto when they were down there. And he said something along the lines of when when Yamamoto got called up a little over two years ago. Uh, I'm going to miss you, kid, but I hope I never see you again. And it's just kind of funny that uh, they both scored a goal uh, in the same game for the Oilers. So it's just awesome to see a guy like that 
someone who's battled to make it to this level and just kept playing for the love of the game. I mean, he he's not getting rich playing uh, AHL hockey, but he did it because he loves the game and and to get this second, third opportunity, whatever you want to call it, to play in the NHL. I mean, he he's going to make the most of it, and I thought he had a really good game. No, he absolutely did, and. Like the thing about athletes is they're all competitive, right? They all want to win. They all, yeah. and they've all got high levels of confidence in themselves. They all grew up being one of the best players on their teams, if not the oh, best player on their absolutely. team. Absolutely. Definitely. So it, it's like that honor student that goes to Harvard and then finds <laughs> out that they're not the top of the class anymore. It, once you get to the professional level, you've been really good. You're a hot shot all your life growing up. And then you get to the show and suddenly you're you're not making the team anymore. And you're in the AHL and you're grinding it out. So yeah. like, that's got to be a bit of a, a challenge mentally for some guys. But uh, and, and Malone's been one of those guys. He was a tweener for a little while at his peak and he kept fighting and kept grinding and he settled into a role in AHL Bakersfield and he's been a valuable asset for the organization down there so good on him for having that mindset definitely and you know when he was called up uh, last week he played his 200th game in the NHL and I'm sure he thought like that's the one last milestone for me like I, I got to the I got back to the show I, I got into my 200th game and uh, you know this this is probably as good as it gets at age 32, but to, for him to score an important goal against the Washington Capitals on Wednesday night hockey, just it it shows you know like it, the the dream doesn't die with just making it. Once you get here, you can do something too. And and what that game did is it earned him another game. And uh, you know he's uh, according to. Uh, the the lines that we saw at practice today, it looks like he'll be playing uh, on the fourth line tomorrow night with uh, Josh Archibald, who will be making his season debut, and Zach Cassian. So that's going to be a, a tough line to play against for the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's that's a lot of physical guys that are mm-hmm. be anxious to get playing. The Cassian's been out for a while. They came back against Washington. Archie, this is his first game of the year. And Malone, he's he's going to be happy and excited to play any NHL game. I also thought Zach Cassian had a pretty good first game back, too. I know that uh, not everyone has been super enthralled with uh, his overall play this season. But, I mean, that back uh, backhand pass from below the goal line to set up Malone, like that was a, a smart play and a smart pass for him to recognize that there was a, a player left alone in front of the net and Malone just roofed that shot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a nice little pass by Cassian. And I mean, there's a reason he got his $3.2 million contract, right? Like, yeah, he got most of his points playing with Connor McDavid and he cashed in on that deal. But uh, it goes to show you, like, he does have a little bit of talent there. We, w- we wish we'd see it more consistently, but <laughs> yeah. it's in there. And and let's hope that as we get closer to the playoffs and and with a a full barn this year, because the last two years that the the Oilers have been in the playoffs, there's been no fans there. So this will be the first time since 2017, if they get in this year, which I believe they will, that the Oilers will be playing in front of a packed house. And I, I think Cassian's one of those guys that just feeds off the crowd. And I feel like he's going to rise to the occasion with that playoff atmosphere and you know the the crowd getting him into it he could end up being um a a, a player that surprises when they get in and, and has a, a really great series 
And I think a lot of people were using that argument for him having a bit of a rebound this season because fans are allowed back in the building, but we, we just haven't seen it yet. It's like, I'm really hoping you're right on that. <laughs> and yeah. um, I don't, I don't know that we should be expecting that. That's where I like the acquisition of a guy like Evander Kane, somebody else that's going to get his nose dirty and drag guys into the fight. As he yeah. said in his press conference, right? So like if he can drag Cassian into the fight on the nights where he's not engaged then that's huge. And I've thought he's probably been the Oilers most physical player since he joined the team aside from the production. So, I mean, very, uh, very good pickup so far uh, for Ken Holland getting him back in January. Um, did anyone else really stand out to you uh, on the Oilers in the, the victory over the Caps? There's a few guys that I want to mention here. Uh, I thought the duo of Zach Hyman and Ryan McLeod were fantastic, mm-hmm. especially in the first period. Like Hyman was super physical in front of the net. He had a lot of chances. He just didn't get one, unfortunately. He wasn't able to bury one, but he generated a lot of chances. And Ryan McLeod is just flying out there. Like he's he's gotten his confidence is with the puck has jumped up another level and his speed is so useful all over the ice with and without the puck. And like I thought he and McLeod or he and Hyman generated a lot. Yeah, and you know, I I like those guys as a as a winger pair and um I mean when they're playing with McDavid, that's such a fast line because Ryan McLeod is the second fastest player on the Oilers. I'm convinced of it. Um, there are times when he's skating with the puck that I think it's McDavid for a second. And then like, Oh, that's 71, not 97. But, uh, you know, he, he doesn't obviously have the, the same skill with the puck that Connor does, but when he's just flying up the ice, there's that brief moment where you're like, you know, this guy can really wheel with it. And that alone has such a, you know, has such value. I mean, even if he doesn't go end to end and score a, a, a brilliant goal, just the ability to transport the puck from one end of the ice to the other and, and get it out of danger. I mean, that that is a, a good asset to have. And, and Zach Hyman, I mean, he would be the, the third fastest guy on that line, but he's got really underrated speed. When he came to the Oilers, I didn't know that he was as good of a skater as he is. You know, you hear about the forechecking ability. You, you hear about... Uh, the, the the incredible work ethic, you know, that he's going to score some some Smitty-type goals, you know, sort of like a, a Ryan Smith-type player, but I didn't realize that he could skate like he can. I mean, he's got good straightaway speed. He's not the most agile guy out there, no. but, and that's not why right. he's out there. Like, I knew he was a good player on the forecheck, but I've kind of been marveling at just some of the things that he can do in a one-on-one battle against the wall. Like, he, whenever he's engaged in a one-on-one battle, he just skates backwards into a guy or does something and comes away with the puck. He, yeah. he just does such a great job of separating men from the puck and making a play. You know, one of the other things that I really like that he does is he he gets the puck behind the net and he likes to come out of uh, out of the net with make this this hard turn into the slot and kind of do a a reverse spin and fire the puck on net. I he just tries to get the goal. Yeah, he he tries to get the goalie to to scramble and I I haven't seen a an oiler do that for a while. So it's it's great to see him kind of add that to their offensive arsenal. Absolutely. And getting to the middle of the ice with the puck is something that the Oilers have struggled to do for a long time. So Mm -hmm. having a guy that can force his way into the middle like that is a big asset. 
definitely. Um, and I, I think he's one away from 20 goals now. So, uh, you know, by the end of the year, he could have 25. I, I know not everyone has loved every move Ken Holland has made, but to me, Zach Hyman has been a, a really good uh, addition for them. For sure. He's not the top six winger I personally would have gone after, but yeah. he's come as advertised. <laughs> he's been good. Yeah. And I mean, I, if I'm going back to July, I was really hoping that they were going to try and make a, a pitch for a guy like Gabriel Landeskog. But, you know, obviously he chose to stay in Colorado and Zach Hyman's come here and been, you know, everything we wanted him to be. He's a, he's a physical player. He, he digs pucks out of the corner. He scores some goals. And just, uh, you know, he, he's definitely addressed the need for, um, for, for scoring on the wings because that was something this team was really lacking last season. Yeah, for sure. And at his price point, too, like to get what we're getting out of him at that price point is not bad value. Like I thought it was going to be an overpay for him because I thought he was a glorified third liner mm-hmm. in Toronto. And I wasn't expecting him to have the same sort of success here at Edmonton because he would likely only be playing with one of McDavid and Settle, whereas in Toronto, we had Matthews and Marner on his line. Here he's the second best player on his line. There he yeah. was the third best player. Right, so I wasn't expecting the results to be quite as good as they have been, but I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, speaking of players who can really skate the puck, a, a guy who I thought had a, a very solid game was Philip Broberg. That's the only and, guy I was going to talk about. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and that might have been his best or close to his best game that he's played in the NHL so far. And, and this is a 20-year-old kid, uh, he, and he's only played about 20-odd games in the NHL, so he, you know, he's very raw at this point. But you can see that the talent is there, the speed is there. He actually made a really nice pass on the power play, too, in the second unit game. It was sort of a a touch pass into the slot for sort of a, a one-time, kind of a one-timer redirection. And I, I just think that he's got a good mind for the game. And, you know, obviously the, the speed is is very impressive. And as he gets older, I think this is going to be a guy who's going to be a for sure top four defenseman, maybe top two, depending on, you know, where he is at 25, 26. But you, you can just see the talent there, the, the wheels he's got. Plus to have a guy who's like six foot three and can skate like that. I mean, it's it's huge for this team. I mean, watching Broberg skate, like I remember... The year he got drafted, watching him in the prospect, like the development camp, I got, I walked, walked over to the community rink and I watched him skate and like all the Oilers prospect, prospect defensemen were on the ice during that session that I watched, including Evan Bouchard. Philip Broberg was a mile ahead of every other player on that ice surface that day, just doing the skating drills that David Peltier was running them through. Even Bouchard was struggling with some of the the detail skating drills, but Broberg was making it look easy. And like this was right after he got drafted. Yeah. So like I can only imagine where this kid's gonna be in a few years. Like Miro Heiskinen is kind of the closest comparable that I can think of. Like Heiskinen is a beautiful skater and he's got a great offensive mind as well. I think Broberg has that potential. I mean, that would be huge if he could even become 75% of what Heiskinen is. And and if we get even more than that, that's, I mean, I mean, he was picked eighth overall. So you're hoping that you're going to get 
an exceptional defenseman out of him. And there was, you know, some debate about should they have taken Trevor Zegris or not. And it's really hard to compare a forward to a defenseman because forwards make an impact in the league sooner. But he might be one of those players that you just have to wait a few extra years and it really pays off down the line because you're like, wow, we've got this six foot three, 215 pound defenseman who can fly out there. And I mean, the fact that, you know, he was a forward until he was 12 years old when he converted to a defenseman. So you can see that he has some of those uh, forward instincts still in him. Yeah, for sure. And we started to see some of those come out at the NHL level against Washington. Like, yeah. the confidence to carry the puck a little bit more, get a couple shots on net, make some some soft touch plays like you touched on there. Like, it, it's coming for him. He He had a really nice drive to the net on one play. And, uh, you know, as long as he can avoid getting, you know, crunched because it's been two games in a row now where he's been hit really hard, uh, you, you don't want to see him sort of go down the same path that Clefbaum is where he's, you know, injured all the time. But other than that, you know, uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to find uh, any faults that uh, he had last game. I thought that was one of his his best outings. And just to also to mention one other thing, you, you talked about how impressive he was against the prospects in the summer of 2019. I mean, skip ahead another year to when he was in the bubble in uh, the summer of 2020. The media were raving about his skating ability against NHL players. And at this point, he hadn't even played a single game in the league. So, And maybe that some of that's attributed to it being summer hockey and he's going a little harder than uh, the vets would who are about to start a playoff series. But nonetheless, this is a guy who... You know, you can see the you can see the raw talent there. It's just about putting everything together. Together, and we have to keep in mind he's still twenty years old. There's there's going to be some growing pains, but I mean he's been knocking it out of the park in Bakersfield this year, and I thought he would actually spend the full season in the minors. So the fact that he's played NHL games at all and had some some good looks while he's been here that's a that's a good sign for the future. Oh, it absolutely is. It's a great sign for the future. And the the other thing that is happening that is encouraging is the fact that he's playing on his offside right now. Yeah. Right? He can play both sides, which does gives the Oilers a lot of options going forward. Yeah. And, you know, that's that, that's a big asset, too. And obviously, ideally, you'd love to have three righty lefty pairs. And I think that for his long term success in the league you ideally would like him to be playing second pair left defense behind darnell nurse on the top pair but um as well as now they've signed nima linen for another two years at seven hundred and sixty two thousand, which is that you need a bargain contract like that on your third pair so especially with the nurses you know big ticket kicking in next season um so yeah i i just think uh sky's the limit for this kid but we just have to be a little patient yeah, for sure. And like you were talking about him getting hit and I, he's had two run-ins with Lucic this year, one in the preseason where he just got hammered in yeah. the corner. He's walked, he walked away from it, but uh, against th- this most recent game is Calgary too. It was another play late in the game where he got hammered into the boards. But the difference was this time he actually tried to do that little thing where the defenseman stops up a little bit and leans into the forward the to try to absorb yeah. that hit. And, uh, and try to slowly be brushed into Probably the, the wrong player to, to try that against, but uh, I'm just glad I, I think that was the right okay. player to try that against. He just didn't execute it properly because <laughs> he stopped up and then he got his toes pointing towards the boards again and he stopped yeah. like five feet in front of the goal line, whereas they normally do that as they're approaching the corner. So, yeah, right. poor kid 
had his got his skates pointing towards the boards and Lucic hit him and down he went. I'm just glad he wasn't injured there. But uh, yeah, yeah uh, bright things ahead for Broberg. Well, anyway, that was a, a great win. Let's hope they can get another one against the defending Stanley Cup champs tomorrow night. And uh, now some uh, exciting news from TSN's Tom Gazzola. He was on uh, the oil stream with Dustin Nielsen today and revealed that the Oilers are going back to their royal blue home and away jerseys next season. Tom also confirmed that the Oilers will be keeping their current navy blue alternates as well as adding the Todd, uh, Todd McFarlane reverse retro jersey next season with sort of an updated uh, look. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the Oilers jersey lineup for 2022-23? I'm very curious and very excited about the the new Todd McFarlane design that they're going to go after because I believe that's going to be part of the reverse retro idea. So, like, I have no idea what they're going to do with that. So I'm really excited to see that, that concept. Um, I know the vast majority of Oilers fans out there are going to be pumped to hear that they're going back to the royal mm-hmm. blue and orange. I, however, <laughs> am in the minority that likes the navy and orange a little bit better. I just find that the navy gives the orange a little bit more of a contrast. <laughs> where, like, I mean, like I've always liked the the royal and orange. Like, I was excited for those to be back in the hope days. And like I'm, I don't dislike them, but I I just like the navy and orange a little bit better. Yeah, and, and fair enough. I, I think one thing is though, like those are the jerseys that are always going to be associated with Gretzky and Messier and Coffee and all the legends of the '80s and all the Stanley Cups they won. And when you look at teams around the league, like Montreal, Toronto, Chicago, Detroit, these original six clubs very rarely make any changes to their their original look because it's such an established brand and that's that's what i want the oilers to do i want this jersey to never go away again it was there from their inception in the league in 1979 until 96 then it came back from 08 to 2017 so it's been gone for five years again now i want this to be back permanently now if they want to bring in new third jerseys over the years or a fourth jersey like they're going to have next season that's fine but this should always be the permanent home and away set and it's just it's the jersey that's associated with them winning cups and when when mcdavid and dryside will bring a cup back to edmonton that's the jersey I hope they're wearing. Although I, I would love for them to wear, <laughs> I'd love for them to win the cup this spring. Uh, we're still wearing the orange one as well. But um, you know, I I was reading uh, another guy on on Twitter who has some connections with OEG, and he said that the players were strongly pushing for this switch as well. So maybe they weren't as fond as the the current orange jerseys. Uh, now, when you said that you preferred the navy blue ones, are you talking about? the the jerseys from the 2006 cup run oh god no i was never a fan of those jerseys okay i like i I didn't like the copper and the red mixed in like i'm talking about like current you like what the bakersfield condors are wearing right now i i don't even mind i'm i like the color scheme like whether the orange is on the shoulders or it's the blue on the shoulders it's kind of six of one half a dozen of the other to me but I, I just like the orange and navy concept a little bit better than the, the royal and orange. Yeah, and they also changed the shade of orange. The The original orange was a little bit darker. They went to more of a highlighter bright orange or a tangerine orange, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah. you know, I I mean, first of all, I loved the, the copper and blue jerseys that they wore um, from 
1996 until 2007. Uh, those were the jerseys of my childhood, so I'm always going to be fond of them. I've got several of those in my in my closet still, and uh, I'll, I'll always be fond of that because I associate it with so many you know memories as a kid, especially the like I said the 2006 Cup run. But yeah, the the orange and blue jerseys that's what Gretzky wore. That's what McDavid should wear. Um, it's it's what the Oilers' identity should be. And I, I heard that they have a new marketing team that isn't influenced by the previous regime. So I'm glad to see that they were able to make this switch. And uh, like I said, hopefully it's here for good now. The, the one that I'm interested in is the Todd McFarlane reverse retro. Uh, apparently it is still going to be navy blue like the original was. But I'm not sure if they're going to add some orange to it somewhere or if the, the look is going to be changed. But I would like to see it myself kept uh as close to the original as as it possible yeah for sure i mean my mind was kind of spinning with possibilities like maybe a bright silver with some navy trim or something like that like mm -hmm. king's helmets i was a little worried about that <laughs> but uh no like they could just they could streamline it a little bit with um, change the stripes up add a shoulder patch or something like that right that's like, what i think we'll see i think the base color will remain the same the logo will remain the same but it, it it's like you said they'll streamline a bit i mean they haven't worn this uniform since 2007 when they retired it so it's kind of cool that it's coming back and maybe it'll only be for one year like we saw those um those reverse retro white jerseys that they wore last season Two games <laughs> yeah they, i think they yeah they wore them for they wore them three. Th three times and two of the times were on the road yeah. so i mean it it I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter when there's no fans in the in the building, but um, you'd like to show off your your jersey to um, to the home fans. It also makes me wonder how many times they're actually going to be wearing the royal blue next season because you got 41 home dates. You're probably going to wear the whites on the road 41 times. So now you have to split up those other 41 games at home between the classic royal blue as well as the the existing uh jersey with no white on it the the navy the navy blue and orange jersey and the mcfarland so are they are they going to give it to a third each i i have a feeling that we'll only maybe see the mcfarland and the navy blue maybe three times each so it's not going to be like a regular rotation for them yeah they might do it like they've done in years past where like home games on saturdays are going to be the navy blue alternate or yeah. something like that but uh you know I was thinking about this. The last time the Oilers made the playoffs, uh, well, not the last time. When they, the last time they made the playoffs, when they were still wearing the the royal blue jerseys, was in 2017. But they switched. If you remember, right before the playoffs, they switched uh, their or their original WHA inspired orange jerseys to their home uniforms right before the playoffs started. So. Yeah. The last time that the Oilers wore the Royal Blue jersey in the playoffs was 1992, so 30 years ago. So I'm glad I'm glad that uh, next season it'll be back and we'll get to see that jersey in the playoffs for the first time in more than three decades. I'm excited for that. Yeah, it's an iconic look. I'll give it that for sure. Like, yeah. It, like like I say, I don't dislike the Royal and Blue. Um, like I'll be happy to wear it and happy to see it. Mm -hmm. For me. As long as they're winning, that's the most important thing. Oh, but yeah. uh, if they're if they're winning in a jersey that everyone seems to like, it makes it uh, even that much better. Yeah, I mean it's going to be a popular and well received. Oh, move, it's going to they're so going to sell they're going to sell a ton of them. I mean, even people will say they have this jersey in their closet still from 
when it was last regularly worn in 2017, but uh, they're, now you got to get an Adidas one. Exactly. (laughs) They're going to sell a ton of them. Okay. So we are 14 games into the Jay Woodcroft era in Edmonton. And since Woodcroft took over behind the bench on February 11th, the Oilers have gone eight, five and one, giving them the 11th best points percentage in the NHL over that span. And this is all while averaging 3.29 goals for per game and only 2.86 goals against per game. Ryan, what has been the biggest change that you've noticed in the Oilers' overall play since Woodcroft came in? Well, there's a few things that I can point to. Systematically, like they've gone to like a more aggressive two forwards deep and then one forward hanging back for checking system, which I think has been effective. And I think we've seen like Vegas did that in their first couple of years and they were very effective with it. So I think that that's a good strategy. Um, they're keeping the the center as the high support player in the offensive zone and using him as the, the guy that's supposed to be backtracking back along with the defense in transition. So I think that's been working out very well as well. Um, but I think the biggest thing for him is uh, like Warren Fogle touched on it in an interview and Derek Ryan, I believe, touched on it as well. Just how he communicates and how detailed he is. Like I think Warren Fogle said he made a comment about now everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Yeah, right. That almost sounds like a bit of an indictment on Tippett, but it's communication is huge as a coach. It's huge. And everybody needs to be on the same page and understand what's going on. And that's where they're at right now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we we all know Tippett relied heavily on his veterans when he was here. Uh, You look at in the playoffs last year, he basically benched one third of his defense, you know, not putting uh, Caleb Jones or Ethan Bear on the ice in overtime against the Jets because he didn't trust them in that situation. And I mean, I'm I'm not a Tippett hater. I, I I think that he did a lot of good things while he was here and is you know responsible for helping turn this team around. But you look at you look at Woodcroft. I mean, he made he's made a seamless transition into this role basically because of his familiarity with more than half the roster. And I think that because he knows a lot of these guys in Bakersfield, it's it's helped him sort of come in and trust these these guys in in situations putting out uh, a Ryan McLeod or a a Brad Malone in important situations, uh, believing that they can get the job done. Uh, as you talked about, you know, guys like Warren Fogle and Derek Ryan feeling like they're more a part of the team because they're not playing five minutes a night. There, there's subtle changes that he's made, and, and I really appreciate how you were able to break down uh, the way that Woodcroft has constructed his his lines and, and how they've sort of how they're operating in the offensive zone. I think you have a really sharp eye for that, and I I like it when you break down these things with pictures in your articles. You had an article out recently where you were uh, where you took pictures at a game and explained what was going on frame by frame. So I think that's really cool and it sort of helps uh, understand the point that you're making. Oh yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, you you watch games, you see things happen over and over again and like, "Oh, I wish they would just stop doing that." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's nice so, it, it's fun to art- articulate it though. Yeah. So when you're when you're taking those, are, is that just a video and you're you're pausing it, or are you just taking a series of pictures? 
No, like you're talking about the Chicago game. I was yeah. at and I was looking at the neutral zone stuff. Yeah, that I was just taking videos. Like I just kind of see what I was looking for about to happen, and then I'd record. And so, like I got a bunch of videos that didn't make and then the screenshot cut. the the stuff yeah. that you wanted to show. Okay, exactly. <laughs> and had you noticed that this was a, even before you had filmed that video, w- were you seeing this trend earlier in the game b- before you said, okay, well, I have to document this now and kind of explain this. Well, it wasn't even so much that game. Like I've been noticing it for quite a while watching the games. Like it's it's rare that you see five Oilers players in the screen when they're doing any kind of a breakout. Mm-hmm. And it's because they've got one or two wingers hanging out at the far blue line. So it, it was kind of neat to go through the videos and just to see some of the actions that they were running off of that and why they were doing that. And yeah. uh but I think it leads to a lo- icing and turnovers a lot more often the way Tippett was doing it, whereas now Tippett, or sorry, Woodcroft has him playing a little bit more as a five-man unit breaking out. So I think that's going to lead to a lot more offensive zone chances in the long run. Right, and if you prorate the the goals per game over an eighty-two game season, uh, since since Woodcroft joined joined the the coaching staff the Oilers would be on pace for 270 goals in an 82-game season. And, you know, that's some some pretty impressive numbers. Earlier this year, they were scoring at an even higher rate, uh, especially in the first month. But I hope that this is going to encourage more offense. And it's it's good to see that the the, uh, the number that they're allowing in goals per game is lower than uh, than what they're scoring per game because it wasn't like that for a big chunk of time this season. Yeah, I think the the biggest improvement has been the goals against, right? I think the goals against were pretty much right where the goals for were, if not a little bit worse. And I mean, there was December, January, they, they weren't scoring many goals, but early in the year, they were scoring a ton. And during the little winning bursts that they've had, they've scored a ton of goals. Like right. they're not winning games two to one. We'll say that. Yeah. And the fact that the Oilers are averaging fewer than three goals per game right now on average uh that uh, that's you know they're gonna because they have mcdavid and dry you should be able to win more hockey games than you lose just by having two superstars like that like they you know they should be good for at least one goal a night between the two of them or one point a night and then if the rest of the the team can even chip in here a little bit here and there they're going to win a lot more games than they lose it. So I, I like the changes he's made. I, I think that uh, he's getting everyone more involved, like I said. And it's just, uh, it, it looks like they're having more fun again. And, he's, and he sort of brought that back to the team because there was a lot more uh, slumped shoulders, I feel like, the last little bit when Tippett was there. And now it just sort of seems like everyone's rejuvenated and ready to make a run at this as they get ready for the playoffs. Well, the, the last two months under Tibbet were so stressful for so many reasons. The team was losing. It, we had Omicron happening. There was a COVID wave going through the team. It was like minus 20, <laughs> minus 30 in Edmonton for like a month straight. So like, it, it, everyone was just depressed and miserable. And Well, I think they lost 12 the straight ice. games, right? The, I think and, they lost 12 straight with him behind the bench. The only two they won were the games he missed with COVID protocol. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they went two eleven and two. They had a six game losing streak, one two without Tippett, and then I think they went on to lose seven more in a row after that. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the Oilers will bring Jay Woodcroft back next year, even if the Oilers miss the playoffs? I sincerely hope they do. Like, I don't know what will happen. I I don't. What's his record? Eight five and one right now. Yeah. Like, 
I don't think we can blame Woodcroft for them not missing, making the playoffs if they fail to make it. So I, I really do hope that they extend him just because like, I fully believe in it's the stock market principle is what I call it. Right. You like you don't buy stocks when they're at their highest points. So that's that's what they've done previously. They want to bring in the experienced coach, your Todd McClellan, your Kenny Hitchcock, yeah. your Dave Tippett. Right. But they've hit their peak already. Like they've achieved what they're going to achieve unless they get a little lucky. Right. And Jay Woodcroft, he's coming in on the ground floor. We're buying this stock really cheap. So, yeah, I mean, you look, Todd Nelson, when he was brought in halfway through the 2014-15 season, he didn't have a, a sparkling record, but it was a lot closer to 500 on a, a team that, you know, was absolutely dreadful and ended up drafting Connor McDavid first overall, thankfully, uh, later that year. But um, I would hate to see something like that happen to Jay Woodcroft where Nelson comes in, is here for half a year, and then he's out of a job. And, you know, he got promoted for half a season to come up from then Oklahoma City to Edmonton, but doesn't get uh, doesn't retain the position when they hire Todd McCullen. So he's just out of work altogether. And I, I really think that another team would snatch up both uh, Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson, actually. So I hope that the organization is smart enough to keep those guys around because Manson's done great work with the defense, both at the AHL level and now in the NHL level. And I, I think that uh, he's a valuable member of this coaching staff. And obviously Jay Woodcroft is a, a good young coach too. And I think that he's a coach that can grow with this team and, you know, uh, eventually hopefully guide them to uh, a Stanley cup. So I, I would be really disappointed if they didn't keep him. And I have a, a feeling that he will stick around regardless. Yeah, and I'm hoping you're right. And then I'm like, and not only Todd Nelson's a good example, but we go back a little bit further to Ralph Kruger, right? Yeah. Like the the lockout shortened season where Neil Yakupov actually showed a little <laughs> bit of talent, and but then uh, the the infamous Skype conversation in well, Dallas Aikens, and they so, they call <laughs> they know call what happened after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and then um, Craig McTavish has even said he went into that interview with. Uh, then Marley's head coach, uh, Dallas Aikens, uh, looking at him as an assistant coach. And he was so impressed with his interview that he fires the head coach and makes him head coach. I mean, ar arguably, if you could go back, that's something you might not want to do. But, you know, I've said this before on this podcast. I try not to feel bad about anything that happened before McDavid got here now because everything that happened prior to that 2015 draft lottery led to the Oilers being in a position to get McDavid. So I've pretty much let everything go after that. I might have some gripes with stuff that's happened since, but uh, anything that happened pre 2015 is, is, you know, water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned now. No, that's, that's totally fair. Like there were three players in that era that, <laughs> If teams were sucking throughout that stretch, they needed that as a reward. It was McDavid, it was Nathan McKinnon, and it was Aaron Ekblad. And I think we got the best one out of the three. We did. Now, I mean, they, there is nothing against Taylor Hall. I mean, he was previously my favorite player. And, you know, obviously, you get Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who is still an excellent two-way player for the Oilers. And, you know, they miss him a lot right now. But can you imagine if instead of uh, the three straight that they got uh, in uh, Hall, Nugent Hopkins, and Yakupov, the three straight they got were McKinnon, Ekblad, and McDavid. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> or 
Or well, they, I mean, the Oilers ended up actually getting four first overall picks. So I mean, add uh, add Austin Matthews to the the mix there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, timing is everything in life, hey? Yeah, and you know what? I was in Toronto um, visiting my sister in 2016, right at the end of the season, and I was watching that last Oilers game. It was the Oilers versus the Canucks. And Patty Maroon scored a goal late in the third period to send it to overtime. And the Oilers ended up lose, losing in overtime. That was Ryan but, Smith's last game, wasn't it? Uh, no, no, it was, no. uh, that was in 2014, his last game. They, they, okay. they always seem to play the Canucks in the, the season finale. Yeah, they've, done it, they've done it several <laughs> <Always>. times, but, <laughs> oh, it, was it the Sedin's last game? I don't, been. I don't think I can't, I don't think it was, I think they were 2018, but regardless, uh, so the, the game, oh, you know what it was? The, the, it was the previous game was the final game at uh, Rexall Place. That was game 81, and then game 82 was played uh, in Vancouver. Okay. And I'm, I'm watching this game on TV, and the Oilers lost in overtime to the... Or no, it was a shootout. The Oilers lost in a shootout to the Canucks. And if if they wouldn't have made it to overtime, if they would have lost in regulation, if Patty Maroon didn't score that goal, Edmonton would have picked first overall for an unprecedented fifth time in 2016. I remember (laughs) something like that, yeah. And can you imagine if they would have drafted Austin Matthews to it, he was a part of this group. (laughs) My God. (laughs) I don't even know how they would fit all these guys under the cap. No, they but, wouldn't. <laughs> but the, the the prospect of watching McDavid and Matthews, I I know Toronto always talks about those two guys playing in in Toronto, but uh, the, the seeing the both those two in Edmonton would be just absolutely ridiculous. That would be hilarious. Uh, I mean, Matthews would probably score seventy goals if, with Matt, Connor setting him up, and Connor would maybe have like hundred and fifty points by now. Yeah, like that's uh, a night kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, that's a kind of a, a long tangent off talking about Woodcroft, but I think we're both on the same page that we hope he keeps uh, keeps his job and sticks around. Absolutely. Okay, I want to talk to you about the goaltending situation now. Uh, Miko Koskinen is 8-1-2 in his last 12 appearances with a 9-18 save percentage, a 2.58 goals against average, and one shutout. Meanwhile, Mike Smith has been less than stellar, to say the least, this season, and the Oilers just loaned Stuart Skinner to the Bakersfield Condors earlier today, now that uh, Smith has uh, finished his, uh, or recovered from his COVID-related, unrelated sickness, I should say. Um, How confident are you in the Oilers' three goalies as they go down the stretch drive here and into the playoffs, hopefully? I'm mildly confident. I know each of the, I mean, Koskinen's playing about as good as we could ever expect him to play right now. Like He's been really good. Mike Smith is obviously a shell of his former self right now, mm-hmm. even when we consider, compare him to last year. And Stuart Skinner surprised me. Like, he's actually been really good this year. Like, he's, he's further ahead than I expected him to be. But, um, I mean, they've been second place in the division for the last two years of this goaltending tandem. So, yes, they have their warts, they have their flaws, but ultimately they've been doing well enough in the regular season. This year, Koskinen had his struggles, for sure, and Smith is is struggling right now and he's been injured. But I have faith that they can turn it around, but... We can't yeah. keep waiting, though. <laughs> I mean, it shows what a difference a year makes because at this time last year, I was saying on this podcast 
that Miko Koskinen isn't inspiring much confidence in the team and you can't really trust him in there. Meanwhile, Mike Smith is having, I won't say a Vesna caliber season, but he was pushing to be a top five goalie in the league the way he no, was people playing. People were talking about him for the Vesna. Yeah. I mean, prob I think he finished seventh in, in Vesna voting. So That's I mean great. still a still a pretty impressive season. Like for a 39-year-old, he had a, a season for the ages for a goalie of of you know that vintage. But you look at this year, it's completely the opposite. Miko Koskinen has basically had to carry the load for most of the season because Mike Smith got hurt hurt in the the third game of the year against the Ducks when uh, uh, Devin Shore fell on the back of his leg and missed several months. Then he came back and got COVID. And, you know, Miko Koskinen... his thumb. <laughs> yeah, and Miko Koskinen has probably played his best hockey in the NHL since he uh, joined the Oilers in 2018. And, I mean, this is almost certainly his last year here, regardless of how he plays, just by a simple numbers situation. I mean, Stuart Skinner has to be on the team next year uh, because he's not waiver-exempt anymore. So he's one of your two goalies. Mike Smith is still under contract. Uh, I guess you could bury him in the minors if you wanted to, but... The way that Koskinen's playing right now, I mean, he's playing like a legitimate starting goalie. As I mentioned, I mean, that 918 save percentage is pretty close to elite, just just under um, elite level uh, numbers for a 12-game stretch here. Only one regulation loss in that time. Uh, he he should be starting tomorrow night against the Lightning. I, I would definitely go to him. I think that if he would have played that game against the Lightning... Uh, a few weeks ago, the Oilers probably win that game because they outplayed them in their own building. They just didn't get the saves. Yeah, and aside from those two goals, I didn't have a huge problem with those two goals, to be honest with you. Like, he was getting a lot of heat for them, but like the first one was a kind of a weird bounce. Like, you guy sliding ashore again, sliding into him, and it went in off a shore skate. I mean, you, you look at the slow motion replay on that, and it looks like Smith. Could have maybe made a save there, but like in real time, when your body's going one way and pucks going the other, it's it's a tough save to have to make. And then the second one at the right at the end of the period, I think there was 14 seconds left. I think it was Stamkos that did a little. Yeah, he came from behind the net, spun around, but that shot. I think Lagesson got a piece of that puck right when Uh, Stamkos released it. Yeah, I mean, it's still one that I think he has to stop. I mean, it's a. It's a B grade. It's it's a B grade, maybe even a C grade shot from where he took it, and he got beat up high, short side. You you need that save, especially because I think less than a minute before that, McDavid had scored on the power play to tie the game. And here here I was thinking they're going to go into the dressing room uh, at, at the intermission, tied one one, and then Stamkos gets that goal with like 17 seconds left to retake a two one lead. Those are just the deflating goals that you know, kill momentum. And, you know, I think what made it even worse is there was a a point in the game where uh, Mike Smith was caught kind of berating the young defenseman on the team. Uh, I think it was Marcus Niemelainen and Philip Broberg that he was kind of barking at for, you know, their defensive coverage on the first goal, I think. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to chew out your 20 and 23 year old defenseman for, a mistake they made you have to be playing stellar hockey too you can't uh you can't be playing the way you are and giving them crap like you have to you know be on top of your game and he hasn't been lately 
And I, I, I mean, I want Mike Smith to succeed. I want him to get back to the form he was last year. But if he's just simply unable to right now, then Stuart Skinner should be the guy in there. Is, is it, I like, yeah, you can make that argument for sure. But at the other time of it, like Ken Holland came into the season with a plan of having Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen be the, be the goaltenders this year. And he hasn't really had that opportunity. Cause like you said, Mike Smith was hurt third game of the year. Yeah. So right now you got Miko Koskinen playing great hockey, but we've watched Miko Koskinen long enough to know that he struggles when the workload gets big. Yes, he you do see some of the quality drop out of his game the more he the more he plays. But I mean, really, they've had two days off now. After tomorrow night, they're going to have another two days off. So there's no reason he can't start on Saturday night and then again uh, next week. And they got there's playing three teams next week. And I believe the three of them are currently ranked in the standings 23rd, 27th and 29th. I mean, when you are in this tight of a, a playoff race and you've got three beatable teams coming up all, all three games at home, by the way, those are three games you have to win. And maybe they only win two of those three games, but you have to win at least two, hopefully all three. And you would just hate for the Oilers to waste another strong effort by the group because their goalie let them down. So is Miko Koskinen going to play all three of them? Uh, is Stuart Skinner going to get recalled and play another one? It seems unlikely. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Koskinen plays two, Smith plays one, and you just hope that he can, you know, give them a game that, you know, they, they so they can beat teams like Detroit, Buffalo, New Jersey. Like they're, these are, these are teams that they have to beat because there's a tough, there's tough games coming up ahead. And, you know, if you can get, uh, these points in winnable games, I mean, that's going to be huge in, towards getting back into the playoff race. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the way I would do it is, I think Woodcroft confirmed that Koskinen is starting tomorrow, which is yeah. exactly what I would do. This is because Smith's last start was last Saturday against Montreal, so about a week ago now. And Miko's playing Saturday, and then they don't play again until Tuesday. So it'll be about a week and a half between starts for Mike Smith. Like, hopefully that's enough practice time for him to get his gear, like, to get his stuff in order. (laughs) Yeah, but we've also said that before the season, and it hasn't been enough. I I really think that that lingering injury is still affecting him. And he just, he hasn't had enough reps this year. And as you get older, I mean, he turns 40 years old this month. As you get older, and because he hasn't been in there as much, he's just not at the level we need him to be at. And simply put, I just I don't know how much they can, how many starts they can give him the rest of the way. Like, if you're two points out of the playoff picture, and you got a, a team rolling into town that you think you should beat, and he lets in five goals, and the Oilers only score four. It's going to be one of those ones where it's like, ah, oh, did we did we make a mistake not starting Koskinen? Because I'm convinced if they start him in that game in Tampa, like we talked about on their road trip, they win that game, and then you're coming back to Edmonton with a three one and one road trip as opposed to a two two and one road trip against some very strong teams. I mean, they played Carolina to a one goal loss. They beat uh they beat the Panthers four to three, and they lost uh, four to three to the Lightning. So I mean. It's just they've shown that they can they can play against the top teams of this league, and that's one they're not even healthy. Wait till they get Nuge back. Wait till they get um, Pulleyarvi back. 
these are these are guys who are going to make the team even better. But they have to get that goaltender. You can't have your goaltender let your team down. Oh, for sure. And like when Smith came back and like right out of the All Star break, there was a lot of hockey being played and not a lot of practicing being done. And obviously, Mike Smith, I think you're right. He might have still been feeling some lingering effects of the injury and he hadn't had the reps and it was just too much. So I think now Mm -hmm. that he's had a week, week and he'll have about a week and a half between starts to just focus on getting his game back. I think there's a chance that he goes a first period without allowing two goals for once. (laughs) Let's hope. I mean, that's let's hope. that's such a hole to dig out of. I mean, again, with Montreal last week on Hockey Night in Canada, you know, you're down 2-1 after 20 minutes again. It's just like, do we have to chase every game? The Oilers have scored the first goal 17 times this year in in 58 games, which is the fewest in the entire league that they've scored first. It's just, it's unthinkable with a team with this much talent that they're always down one nothing and it would it's it'd be great for this team to play with the lead a little more often and i hope that happens down the stretch here it's gonna have to happen a lot more down the stretch because they're undefeated when they score first (laughs) exactly they are and i believe they're also undefeated when leading after 20 minutes as well so it just shows what happens i mean they, they don't do it very often but when they do they usually win yeah, no, there's a there's a big correlation between scoring first and winning games in the NHL. There is. Like the Oilers are living proof this year. For sure. All right, let's move on to Evander Kane now. And since joining the Oilers on January 29th, Kane has nine goals and 14 points in 19 games, which is good for third in team scoring over the past six weeks. And he only carries a $2.1 million cap hit, largely due to his many off-ice issues, but... You know, it's still a benefit for the Oilers and he can become a UFA in the summer. Ryan, based on how Kane has performed so far, do the Oilers have to strongly consider re-signing him? I think you're basing it just on the performance alone and not evaluating anything else right now. Then, yes, of course, he's got 14 points in 19 games. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's been... He's producing like nine goals. He's, he's forward. He's scoring. I mean, he's on pace for like a forty goal season. You know, and I the impressive not... part. The impressive part to me is he's done it with very few power play points so yeah. far. He's done most of his damage at even strength, which has been a big problem for the Oilers. Right, and, and getting getting the secondary scoring aside from McDavid and Drysital at even strength, that's been a big problem. And Kane is helping to address that. Right. And we've talked about what, uh, you know, how how depleted they were for talent on the wings last season. And then getting Hyman, you know, that helps address it. Pooley taking another step forward, you know, gets them another step in the right direction. But now you bring in a guy like Kane, who is a legitimate top six forward, arguably a top line forward and a guy who has scored 30 goals in this league before. He's joining the fold on a value contract, a bargain, absolute bargain. Um, and what this not only does is it, it gives the Oilers a, a big, strong power forward who can put the puck in the net, but it also allows them to shift Nugent Hopkins back to his natural position and play center. And, you know, that gives the Oilers a stronger third line. So bringing him in affects the entire lineup a, in a positive way. And I just, I think the only thing you could wonder about Kane aside from is he, is his reputation going to, uh, continue to follow him here and you know have him slip up in some way but the the only thing that i worry about other than that is 
what the cost is going to be to keep him. Because if he's going to command, like what he was making $7 million a year in San Jose. So I don't think he's ever going to make that type of money again. But if he's looking for a $5 million a year deal or $6 million a year deal, that's just not in the cards. The Oilers are just going to have to part ways and say, hey, thanks for helping us make the playoffs. Uh, and he'll hopefully say, thanks for helping me reestablish some value. We shake hands and, and go our separate ways. But if he wants to stay with this team and feels like he's in a good spot to have success here, then he's going to have to come in at a much lower cap hit, probably not much more than he's even making right now. And even if he did want to make $3 million a year, well, the Oilers still have to find the, the cap space for that because, I mean, you've got Koskinen coming off the books, but Darnell Nurse's new contract is going to kick in. Pugliarvi needs a new contract. Yamamoto needs a new contract. So they'd probably have to trade out Tyson Berry. They'd probably have to trade out... Um, like I said, Zach Cassian. So these are moves that they they could potentially make to keep Kane, but it's not going to be as simple as if he wants to stay, they can keep him. There, there's some financial aspects that have to be worked out here. Yeah, that, that's why I kind of said, if you base it on production alone, yes, of course. But right. there's the other side of it that you just touched on, the salary cap, and what, what does Evander Kane want, and what can the Oilers afford to give him? They're, those might be two very different things. Right. Because so, if I'm Evander Kane, and I've just coming off of a long-term $7 million con- per year contract, and now I'm suddenly making just over two, like, we know Evander wants to make more money than that. Like, yeah. We know he's going to ask for more, and he's likely going to want a little bit of security. But if I'm the Oilers, I'm weary just because of what well, you said, his off-ice reputation. Right. And right. he's about to turn 31. So, I mean, he's, yeah. you know, he, he's still scoring at a at an excellent level. And, you know, I don't think there's going to be a huge drop-off in the next couple of years. It's not like he's 35. But um, when I look at this player, like, is he going to still be in a, a position where he can play in the top six? You know, Dylan Holloway's coming along. Um, is Holloway going to eventually be your top line left winger? Well, does that push Hyman down to second line? Does that push Kane down to third line? It's You have to fit in all these guys. And I, I still think you can never have too much skill. So, you know, if someone does get pushed down to, to the third line and they're making $5 million like Hyman is, you know, it's not ideal, but if if you can have as many good players on on the forward group as as you can, I mean that just improves their chances of winning. So I I would like to keep them if if at all possible. It just depends, like we said, what the cap is. So I'll ask you, if Holland is able to shed enough space to fit him in in the books, what would be your best offer to Evander Kane in terms of uh, term and dollar figure? I certainly wouldn't go long term, just for for his age and just for absolute the best offer on the table. Take it or leave it. Best offer. I'm going like we got to remember the Oilers have 11.7 million dollars of space for seven roster spots next year, and you got to think about Holloway and Broberg. Well, that, that's why I'm <laughs> and, saying like they, they do have some cheap contracts coming in. Like you know Holloway's yeah. under a million bucks. Nima Linen's you know pretty close to league minimum i'm just yeah. saying like if let's just for this scenario say that they can trade tyson berry for picks or prospects or they can get rid of zach cassian's contract and not have to retain any money what when he's stepping into the office with you and you're saying he's saying okay what do you got for me like what, what would you give him 
I'd probably start with about like three, three by three is probably about as high as I would go. I'm pretty close to that too. Cause I, I really, you know, cause then by the time that contract's expiring, he's close to 34. And I think that's right where you would want to be separating at that point, because, you know, that's when I think you're going to start to see some decline in his production after that. But if you could keep him for around for three years for the heart of McDavid's, you know, prime at a, at a reasonable cap. And I think that's something they have to strongly consider. Yeah, for sure. Like you look at a lot of the moves that Holland made this year, they signed a bunch of guys to three and four year deals. And that's, that's about the length of contract that Leon and Connor both have. I know Leon's yeah. got one less year than Connor, I believe, or it's the other way around. But, uh, the other thing is, uh, the sharks still, uh, because they bought out Kane, you know, he's still owed money for the rest of this year and the next three years, which will be paid out over a longer period of time because of the buyout. But I, you know, at seven million a year, they still owe him twenty-one million dollars after this season. So he's got paychecks coming in. You and you would hope that with that money secured, that he could you know take a a, a smaller a cap number in Edmonton. So you got you got two two paychecks coming all the time, and hopefully uh, you're on a, a good team because in San Jose they're kind of rebuilding, and here in Edmonton, you know, we're trying to push to be contenders. So that would be something that I would hope would be attractive to Kane and he'd be willing to take a little bit less money to be on a good team. Yeah. And given where the Oilers are are right now and where they want to be and when they want to get there, a guy like Evander Kane, who's like in his prime or nearing the end of it, that's kind of a good fit on a short term deal right now. Whereas like if we keep adding more and more young guys, we we need to have those guys in the system and we need to have some guys contributing. But yeah. if, if we want to win Stanley's and we want to win them now, you got to have guys like Kane who are contri- at their peak right now. Exactly. And I also think if they end up playing a team like uh, Calgary in the playoffs, you're going to be really glad you have that guy because he could be the answer to someone like Matthew Kachuk. Yeah, absolutely. They had a little bit of a, a little exchange in the faceoff circle coming start in the third period on the in the game last week. Yeah, and you know, the Oilers had their way with them the first two games of the year, beating the Flames on home ice, and you know they lost a a three one game that was pretty much a two one game for most of the night. So I'm just saying, when the when this team gets healthy, I'm still convinced that they could beat Calgary in a seven game series. Oh yeah, I'm like I'm not scared of Calgary. Like they're they're no. playing out of their skin right now. Like this is like unprecedented a level of hockey that the Flames are playing at. I don't think they have the capability of going deep and no. like playing at this level for however many more months. And you look at the Oilers' two eleven and two stretch that they had in the middle of the season. There were a couple games there where they let in the game winning goal in the final ten minutes of the game. If even both of those games get to overtime, now you're looking at two extra points. <clears throat> Say they even win one more of those games, now you're looking at four extra points. They're a lot closer to Calgary than they are right now. So They just don't have the overtime losses that a lot of teams do. And maybe they win those games that they push to overtime. So I I think that the the standings might be a little bit deceiving as to how far ahead Calgary is. I think they only have... They have, I think, four more wins than the Oilers. So 
it's it's not that big of a gap. And you know, if when these two teams, if these two teams play in the playoffs, I, I think it would be an electric series, first of all. And I, I do think that even though Calgary might be favored right now, we know how McDavid and Dryside will play in the Battle of Alberta, and I think that uh, it would be big trouble for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun to watch for sure. But uh, the, the Calgary just doesn't have the same firepower. Like, I'll, I'll give them a lot of credit for the way they've played over the last while. Like, the Oilers went 16 and 5 in their hot start, and Calgary's beaten that record in, in the last little while. I think they're like 17, yeah. 3 and 1 or something in the last little stretch here. So good on them. But uh, I just don't think they have the horses. No. All right, well, let's finish up tonight by talking about some potential trade targets for the Oilers ahead of the March 21st deadline. First off, what position do you think the Oilers should be looking to upgrade the most? And secondly, are there any names specifically that you think are realistic options for the Oilers to acquire? I think ultimately they're in a position where they're not going to be making any sort of big deals. Like I think they're going to be, it's going to be depth rentals. And I think the, the defense is kind of where you need to be. If you look at the six that are up here right now, you got Broberg, you got William Lagasin, who are both really young. Even Bouchard, who we expect to be a regular, is still quite young. Uh, like even at full health, like you might have a Chris Russell back there, but I think we could upgrade on Chris Russell pretty easily for, 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 for cheap to play that third pairing left D spot and just offer a little bit more insurance for if something does happen in the playoffs. So a couple names that I'd throw out there, and I'm going to qualify this by saying that the Oilers only have realistically i did i did some math earlier about 1.34 million dollars to work with and then you can add the value of any outgoing contracts yeah, it would have to be money I, right i mean it's got to be if not fully at least close to money in money out yeah like right now today they have well, depends on what site you look at but cap friendly has them at like What's I have the exact number five hundred ninety one thousand three hundred and four dollars in cap space i saw you tweeted that earlier today too <laughs> Yeah, just to bring Archie back, they had to send two guys down. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to afford to activate him from LTIR. So now we're at a 21-man active roster with under $600,000 of cap space. Yeah. <laughs> right? So th- that's, that tells you what to expect at the deadline. Not much. But uh, some guys that we could potentially go after, like, and we got to remember the rental deadline. We got to look at teams that are out of contention, that are going to be sellers and that are looking for picks and prospects in exchange. So one guy that I got three defensemen on here that that I'll talk about. Robert Hag out of Buffalo is one of them. $1.6 million. Like he's more of a physical shutdown type guy, which is, I think the style of play that we need right now. Probably what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another name that's been thrown out there a lot recently is Justin Braun out of Philadelphia or right shot D $1.8 million. But history with Jay Woodcroft in San Jose and again, big big shutdown guy. That would be a nice piece for him as well. Sorry, I lied to you. There's going to be four names. A name that I'm really curious about and interested in is Andy Green out of the Islanders. Hmm. Yes, he's old. He's 39 years old, but he carries a cap hit of league minimum 750K. He's been on two Islanders teams in the last two years that have gone to the conference finals, and he's played very well in a bruising shutdown role for them. So I think he'd be a really interesting piece to look at. Yeah, and... Uh 
you know, there, there are some, there's some options there. I, I think that you're on the right uh, page though. Like they will probably look to bring in a defenseman as opposed to a goaltender. We've already heard that Mark Andre Fleury and Semyon Varlamov have both uh, rejected trades to Edmonton because of their uh, limited no movement clauses. So, yeah. you know, it seems like the goalie market, even though that's probably an area that the Oilers would like to upgrade. And we know that Ken Holland tried last summer to bring in a goalie. He was really in on Darcy Kemper and kind of just fell short. Uh, I think the asking price was um, a first round pick and Dmitry Samarukov. And you could argue that maybe the Oilers should have made that deal, but it's it's for one year of, of Kemper because, you know, maybe he doesn't re-sign in Edmonton. And is it worth it to give up one of your top defensive prospects you've been developing for the past four years, plus your first round pick for a one year goalie. I, I think that, you know, he might've honestly made a good decision by not uh, doing that trade, but obviously now here we are looking for a goaltender. Uh, The defense seems to be the way they're going to go. Evander Kane was sort of their default deadline pickup. They just got him a couple months early and, you know, they were able to bring him in like we talked about already for a a reasonably low cap hit. Uh, Getting a defenseman is going to be, probably where they need to go of the guys you mentioned. Is there anyone that you think should be the top target of those guys? I think just based on the asking price and the cap hit, like we got to keep the cap hit as low as we can just to have some flexibility for uh, injuries and call-ups during the rest of the season. Like Andy Green's a guy that I'm really curious about. Um, The other guy that I'm kind of half interested in is Eric Gustafson out of (laughs) Chicago. Former Oilers draft pick. Former Oilers draft pick, and I believe he was with Montreal in the playoffs last year on that Stanley Cup finalist team, if I remember correctly. But uh, I think he would be an interesting piece to look at as well, just as a, a set, like a 6-7-D kind of guy. I still sometimes wonder why they never signed him. I mean, maybe they just didn't see it, but I remember even hearing... Uh pretty good scouting reports on him at Oilers development camp back in like, I don't know when 2012, 2013, something like that. So it's just kind of surprising that he didn't end up getting an entry level deal. I thought this was all water under the bridge now, Eric. Uh, No, I mean, I just, I'm just wondering, (laughs) I'm just wondering why it didn't happen. I mean, I've let it, I've let it go, but I mean, it's just like, it just doesn't make sense. Um, I I can still uh, be frustrated with things that happened after like Edmonton, not drafting, uh, Alex DeBrinket in the second round in 2016. You know, I'm almost more frustrated with that decision. And, you know, like I like Tyler Benson too. And I think he's, you know, a decent hockey player at the NHL level, but that's one that kind of still confuses me. Yes. Like, this was, this was McDavid's shooter in junior, you know, and it's a guy who probably would score 50 goals in the NHL if he had Connor setting him up night after night. So that's a, there were questions about Debrinkat just because of his size and all that. Oh, too, I mean, but, every uh, team in the league passed on him, so it's not yep. just Edmonton. Like even the Chicago Blackhawks passed on him uh, before they took him in the second round. Yeah, but, but uh, it's just proving everybody wrong. Yeah, I mean, a five foot six guy. They thought, is this is he going to translate to the NHL? And then some people said, well, Edmonton doesn't like to take small players. And then of course, the following year in 2017, they draft Kyler Yamamoto. But it's just. Yeah, that's that's one. But I can let the Gustafson one go. Hopefully, uh, if he does come in, it would be a a long time homecoming. Sort of like when uh, uh, Tobias Reeder 
finally made his Euler debut like 10 years after he was drafted, although that didn't go as well as planned. Never did score a goal, did he? Never did score a goal with the Oilers, no. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty similar. Good example for sure. Um, you know, one, one player that I would be interested in also from the Flyers, not uh, Braun, is um, uh, Travis Sanheim. And, you know, he's 25 years old, about to turn 26. He, he's got a, he's got a, a long frame, like he's six foot three, but he's, you know, not an overly bulky guy. I think he's only 181 pounds and he, he leans more towards the offensive side of the game than, uh, to, to sort of make up for his shortcomings in his own end. But I, I just wonder if, uh, you know, he could come in and, and be a, a little more, bit more of a puck moving guy. I mean, he's got a $4.6 million cap it. So they would have to probably trade Tyson Berry out. And he's, he's got 20 points in 55 games. So there's, there's some decent production there, but I, I just wonder if, uh, bringing in someone like that would, uh, would be of interest to the team. I, I don't think that he's going to be the the target, even though the Flyers are rebuilding. Someone like Braun probably is more of a, a logical guy because it's like you said, as much as they'd love to have another guy who can move the puck up ice and chip in some offense, uh, they're, they're probably looking to suppress some goals too. Oh, 100%. Like, they've got a lot of puck movers on this team already. Like, you could look at Darnell Nurse in that mold, especially on the right side. Like, you got Evan Bouchard and Tyson Berry, who are kind of redundant. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I mean, right now you got a Broberg up here who plays that same sort of way. And, like, with the way that the team was leaking goals at the start of the season, it would be really nice to add a shutdown guy into that mix. Definitely. Um, so do you think like if you had to make your best prediction just to just to kind of wrap up the show here like if you had to make your best prediction like do you think the Oilers do anything at all does Holland kind of decide to sit patiently and and not make a move what what do you think happens here I think the next week and a bit is going to say a lot about what Holland does I think he I don't think he even knows what he's going to do at this point yet because like he he's he's shown he's willing to spend like in each year he's been here so far he's made some kind of move at the deadline whether it was Athanasio and Ennis in his for in the one year it was Mike Green yeah like, he likes to bring in a veteran defenseman Green is in yeah. 2020 Kulikov in 2021 Kulikov. so yeah. maybe we maybe we get a guy like that they'll bring in you know a, a veteran because you can never have enough veteran defensemen, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like he, everybody knows that missing in the playoffs is not an option this it's year. It's not an option. So like I think I think he'll do something, but it, like we've outlined the cap situation and the the Oilers don't have any assets. Like they don't have any draft picks this year basically. They got, they got their first, oh. the second and the third are tied up in the Duncan Keith, in the conditions of the Duncan Keith deal. They don't have a fourth. So really you got your first and then your fifth, your sixth, your seventh. Yeah. Hey, that's not going to yield you a whole lot. I mean, last year they did get Matt Vay Petrov in the sixth round of the draft, and that's looking like an excellent pick. He he scored his thirty first goal of the season as an OHL rookie tonight. So I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great looking pick. Absolutely. Yeah, you, I mean, props to Holland and Tyler Wright and their staff for finding that guy. But you're right. Like I mean, uh, on paper, a sixth round pick isn't a, an overly attractive asset. Sometimes you have to hit it out of the park like they did there with that guy, but. Overall, yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna get you much in a trade. No, for sure, it, it definitely won't. So, like, I could definitely see a depth of defenseman being added. 
Um, one other guy I want to look at in, in Philly as well, and to just to totally change it up a little bit and go <laughs> forward here, Derek Broussard. Okay. Like, we, we could really use a guy to play that third-line center role. <laughs> like, Nuge is giving the team what we need there right now, but I personally don't think that's where he's going to thrive the most. It's like, and you can never have too many guys that can play center. But like Derek Broussard, expiring contract, veteran player, playoff experience, and he's producing at like a half a point of pace or half a point a game pace almost this year. It's like he's he's still got some some offensive pop left in him. So I think that's a guy that's potentially worth targeting out of Philadelphia as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I thought you were going to get really bold for a second there and say Claude Giroux. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I wish, but yeah, no. <laughs> That one's probably not in the cards for us. Um, But, you know, the way I look at it, the Oilers' fate is really in their own hands. I mean, they Vegas lost again tonight. Pittsburgh did did us a solid by beating them. Uh, They still have two head-to-head games against L.A. who are ahead of them in the standings. They got a game against Calgary. They've got another two games against Anaheim, I believe. So, I mean, these are are all divisional opponents. Uh, They're done playing the Canucks already. But uh, they've got Dallas a couple of times. They've too, got Dallas. They? they Dallas. But you know what? I'm not even looking, and maybe I should, but I'm not looking at the wild card picture as much. And yes, Dallas is a team that they will have to play again uh, in Edmonton as well. So it's it's just I'm not thinking about Nashville. I'm not thinking about Dallas and and looking at you know sneaking into one of those wild card spots and playing either Colorado or Calgary in the first round. I'm looking to lock up a top three spot in the Pacific. And I think that's what the Oilers focus should be. And they should be planning to, you know, if not get home ice advantage, like they have the past two years, uh, at least go through their own division and not have to, to slug it out going through the, the uh, central division. It's just, it, Playing Vegas or playing LA, you know, I I think they can finish ahead of Vegas right now because I mean, you look at that team; they're depleted. Their 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 goalie is out long term. I mean, they're they're missing some guys. Uh, and uh, even though the Kings have had a rebound year this year, they're not a team that I'm overly scared of either. I think the Oilers could beat them in a seven game series as well. So when they have all these games against divisional opponents left, as long as you take care of your own division and Edmonton actually has a very strong record against the Pacific division this year. Um, so if they can continue that trend, then they, they should be in a good spot going into the playoffs. And I, I think they will get there. Yeah, no, you make a good point. Like they've done really well against their division this year. And like, that's, those are the swing games. Those are the yeah. four point games that really matter. Uh, I mean, they should they should try to beat Dallas too for good measure, just in case they do <laughs> yeah, exactly. the wild card spot. But you're right; they they should absolutely have higher aspirations. Like they, with the Mark Stone and Robin Leonard being out of Vegas and them just not playing up to their level. You know, Jack Eichel, who has just come back after not having played hockey for like a year, mm-hmm. so like it's going to take him some time to get his feet underneath them. So like, that's a, that's a vulnerable team. And the Kings, they just lost Arvidsson for a little while. Mm-hmm. I believe. Paul seeing he was out so like that that's an important piece for them so that's a good point there's too. Opportunity. there there definitely is and i mean if you get that second wild card spot 
and you have to play the Colorado Avalanche, your old favorite team. That's not a that's not a promising matchup for Edmonton uh, in the first round of the playoffs. So you know, no, you but pro- if I'm Colorado and I see the Oilers as my wild card opponent in the first round, I'm not impressed. <laughs> like that yeah. is a dangerous wild card team. It is, it, and and you know what? When you get McDavid in the playoffs, anything could happen. I mean, obviously last year. You know, he was still a point per game player despite being absolutely abused night after night uh, against the Jets and not drawing a single penalty. But I won't even go down that road. We're too late in the podcast. <laughs> We're trying uh, to repress those memories. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's just, you know, if they get in, e- even if they don't get home ice, let's just say that they, they get third in the Pacific and they have to play, they have to start on the road against the Kings. I'm fine with that. I think that that's a series that they can win. And then you've got Calgary potentially having to face a, a tough wildcard team themselves because of, you know, the strength of the central. Maybe they have to play Nashville in the first round. Maybe they have to play uh, uh, Dallas, depending on how they do. You look at a couple of years ago, they were the top seed in the Western Conference and they got uh, eliminated in the first round by Colorado before the Avs had really taken off as a, a true cup contender. And if, you know, maybe the Oilers play Calgary in the second round. We get that long-awaited uh, battle of Alberta. But, uh, no, I think the best spot for the Oilers is to be in that number two or number three spot uh, in the Pacific, and that's probably where they're going to land. No, I definitely agree with you. That's, I mean, yeah, that would be the ideal scenario. <laughs> get get the Kings in the second, get the Kings in the first round. Mm-hmm. Take it from there. I, I, think that, I think the path to the conference final going through their own division is an easier path than having to go through the central hundred percent. Like the central, like you got Minnesota, you got St. Louis. So even if you do somehow upset Colorado, that second round matchup is not good. Like look at what Minnesota's done to us in two games this year. They've just destroyed us. Yeah. It's not been good. I don't want to have to play them at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ryan, I want to really appreciate you for being on the show tonight. It was awesome talking to you and I hope that you'll be back on again. Uh, before we uh, sign off though, where can people follow you and find that new article that you just wrote? Yeah, no, thanks, Eric. It's been a lot of fun as well. And, uh, I appreciate you having me on. But mm-hmm. uh, my Twitter handle is at LotsRyan, L-O-T-S-R-Y-A-N. And uh, the new article about the Oilers power play is up at heavyhockey.com. That is, I believe, still the most recent article. So everyone, please go over to heavyhockey.com and check that article out. And everyone give Ryan a follow on Twitter as well. Ryan, Let's hope we get a win tomorrow night and that uh, we have more good stuff to talk about going forward. And yeah, just once again, thanks for being on the show tonight. Yeah, no worries. I'm going into the game with a lightning fan tomorrow. So we'll have Oh, are you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? I, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm by no means a lightning fan, but they'll always have uh, a small place in my heart, uh, for eliminating the, uh, (laughs) the beating the Calgary flames in the 2004 Stanley cup final. I'll always appreciate them for that. And, uh, as a, as a result, not only did they, uh, beat my most hated team, but Corey Sarich, uh, won a cup with Tampa that year. And he was a former Saskatoon blade and uh, Saskatoon native who brought the cup back to my hometown that summer of 2004. And I got to get my picture taken with the cup. So the lightning did me (laughs) a double favor that year. There you go. That's awesome. But let's hope tomorrow night it's uh, it's a win for the Oilers. Absolutely. Go oil. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good night. You as well. Thanks again, Eric. So for Ryan Lotzberg, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.